This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Well, welcome to the Place for a Purpose podcast. We are your hosts, Elizabeth and Chris McKinney, and we are so excited for today to talk to Michael Graham, who's the program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. He's also the executive producer and writer for the podcast As in Heaven and the co-author of the new book that we're going to be discussing today, The Great Dechurching: Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? He's received his MDiv at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He's married to my friend, Sarah, which we'll get to. They have two kids. And we are excited specifically for the implications of his work on the neighboring space. So welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for being here. It is really good to be with you guys. And my personal memory of you, as you know, goes back to, gosh, Five years ago, when my brother-in-law, Josh, had a brain tumor, and we were scrambling, trying to buy a one-way ticket to Arizona to get me out there to be with my sister, and Sarah, your wife, reached out to me on Facebook and said, we want to help pay for your plane ticket. And so even though this is my first time actually meeting you, I want to give you a hug. I just feel really grateful for you and your wife, and I'm super thankful for your work. I don't even remember that. That's probably, <laughs> it's probably a good thing for my soul. <laughs> well, it meant a lot to us. Yes, it did. And Josh is better now, too. That opportunity for you to go down there was really great for us. So not only are we thankful for you personally, but we also just really appreciate your work and Jim's work on this book. Thank you for writing this and for doing all the work. In the book, you talk about 40 million adults who used to go to church once a month are now attending less than once a year, and they are de-churching. And I thought it was really interesting in your book, you said Google Docs didn't recognize that term, de-churching. It recognized unchurched, but it didn't recognize de-churching. I think some of us have maybe heard the term unchurched, but maybe not this term de-churching. So why don't we start off by having you just kind of explain what does that term mean? Dechurched is somebody who used to regularly go to church and now just doesn't. And it's not in the dictionary, but it has been a term that's probably been used for about a little over 20 years, primarily in church planting circles to talk about people that used to go to church. Unchurched is people who have never gone to church on a regular basis in their life. There's another missing category kind of that lives in between those I would call underchurched. Sometimes people call them like CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only. For the purposes of our study, we had to actually like draw the line. Well, what is the line for us? Well, it's arbitrary, but we said somebody who used to go to church at least on a monthly basis consistently and now less than once per year. So the Christmas and Easter people are actually not counted among that 40 million, even though probably technically you probably should. If you find a 40 million number scary, it's probably higher than that in terms of people you should be concerned about. Yeah. You mentioned in your podcast, you had anecdotal evidence of people who had left the church, but you wanted to do this survey and get some numbers behind it. 
explain a little bit about what you guys did for the research and how that worked. I don't want to get too nerdy here, but... Go for it. Nerd out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So if you want to nerd out for a second, we did this because we needed actionable information for everyone from us as pastors and elders, all the way down to people who are just regular churchgoers in our church, because we had run across some data that said that about 2 million of the a little over 4 million people in our metro area, which is Metro Orlando, had dechurched. And oh my goodness, that's the second biggest demographic in our context besides gender. And probably by now, after COVID, I mean, that data was 2018. It could be even larger than gender at this point. Dechurched could be the single largest category in our metro area. And so we just needed actual information of like, okay, well, who are all these people and why did they go? And are they willing to return? And if so, on what basis? So we wanted to do a study that was joint between clergy and academia, as opposed to some other nonprofit basis. That's why we contacted Ryan Burge. Ryan looped in his associate, Paul Jupe. Both these men are social scientists. Ryan's also an ordained pastor and has a congregation. And has written about the nuns, so those who don't have an affiliation. Yeah, nuns are the N-O-N-E-S's, the people who are nothing in particular, atheist and agnostic. But yeah, so we got with Ryan, and Ryan looped in Paul Jupe. Paul Jupe's expertise is on survey design. And so we basically designed a multi-phase survey. The first phase of that survey, the purpose was to determine how many people in America have dechurched. So that was a general population study, okay, several thousand people. Then the second phase of the study, we looked at only people who had dechurched, what was going on there, and that was from all religious traditions. And then the third phase of the study, we wanted a lot of granularity on what was going on among people who left evangelical churches. All told, we surveyed 7,000 people. And that third phase of the study was very granular. We had over 600 data points on a few thousand people who left evangelical churches. So that's kind of the survey design. All the insights that we have there in the book are statistically significant at the national level based on the kind of academic standards. And as you surveyed these people, you kind of identified five different types of people that are dechurching. Can you share more about those groups? The clusters that emerged were four different types of dechurched evangelicals. And then there's a dechurched mainline profile and a dechurched Roman Catholic profile. In the book, we collapsed the Roman Catholic profile and mainline profile into a, a single chapter. It looked pretty similar across the board. We, we highlight a couple differences between them in the book and that chapter. I think that's chapter seven or eight. And then among the people who dechurched out of evangelical circles, there were four different profiles. So about 15 million of the 40 million who left houses of worship in America left evangelical churches. Of those, the first category is cultural Christians. These are people who left around age 40. They left about a little over a decade ago. They didn't necessarily have huge pain points with the church. This is about 8 million people. So a little over half of the people dechurched out of evangelical contexts pretty low orthodoxy scores. I mean, for example, only 1% of that group says that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? So maybe most of these people weren't really ever Christians, at least from a doctrinal standpoint and kind of basic Nicene Creed level Christianity. But interestingly enough, almost half of them willing to return to an evangelical church today. 
Well, that's interesting. Then the second group was dechurched mainstream evangelicals. This group left around the same time, around age 40, but more recently, really in the last three years by and large. This group, very high orthodoxy scores. 98% Jesus is the Son of God. Definitely seem like these are like actual practicing Christians, actually understand their Bibles by and large. Their orthodoxy scores were better than people who still go to church right now. And 100% of this group was willing to return to church right now. And it looks like they kind of want to. And there's about two and a half million of those folks. The next two groups are also roughly two and a half million people, more or less. The third group were ex-evangelicals. We called them this label, not because of how the term has been used on the internet, but because 0% of this group was willing to return to an evangelical church. Now, most of them were willing to go to a Christian church of some sort of a non-evangelical variety. And interestingly enough, I would say for about almost 80% of them, a lot of Christian belief was really intact. And many of them actually do kind of appear to be Christian. Here's a category that's important. About three quarters of the people who left, so 30 of the 40 million people who left houses of worship, seem to do so without huge pain points. So we call those people casually dechurched because they left more lackadaisically. They left without necessarily intentionality, as opposed to the other 10 million, which we call dechurched casualties. These are people who had some form of hurt, pain, and they left houses of worship with a high degree of intentionality. So this third category of ex-evangelical, these are people who left evangelical churches with a high degree of intentionality, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt that was there. And then again, that's about two and a half million people. That group is far more female than male. The first two groups were monolithically white. I want to say 98% and 91% respectively. The ex-evangelical group was a little bit more diverse at only 82% white. And then the fourth group is monolithically non-white. Because of that, we call that group the BIPOC group. Now, BIPOC is just a fancy acronym for Black, Indigenous, and Persons of Color. In other words, a group of people who's entirely non-white. Now, what's interesting, when we were using the machine learning algorithm, we didn't let the algorithms see or sort based on ethnicity or race. But what's interesting is that this ended up being actually a powerful factor, one that cast a relatively long shadow in the data. So even though the algorithm couldn't see or sort based on those things, it still did by accident. There's something instructive there for us, missiologically, pastorally, and just philosophy of ministry-wise. That's an important factor when we're dealing and relating with people and their stories. So this group left the earliest of any of the groups. They left in the late 90s. And it's a mixture of casual dechurching and dechurched casualties, similar to the cultural Christian group, just a slightly higher view of the Bible and a slightly higher view of Jesus than the cultural Christians, but don't really appear to be walking with Christ today. I would say of the 15 million people who left evangelical churches, it looks like about 5 million of those 15 have a Nicene Creed understanding of the Christian faith in terms of the doctrines, and about 10 million don't. So the narratives of the people who have left the church of being, oh, these people were never Christians to begin with, well, that's not accurate. But it's also not accurate to say that, well, everybody who left actually were Christians. Data is always more complex than the pre-existing stories that we kind of put around them. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I want to get to that. I see if I meet a de-church neighbor, I think I would initially assume that they left because of hurt. They left angry, 
which is possible. And we want to be sensitive to that. But what I'm hearing you saying is there's a lot of people who have left who are willing to return. And it wasn't because of some kind of hurt. Before we get to maybe some of the good news or opportunities, I am curious, just kind of on a large scale, put into perspective kind of the magnitude of this de-churching moment for us. You were talking about the largest and fastest shift in American history in terms of a religious shift. So the next closest shift was the 25-year period after the Civil War. And that was natural because you had all these people who were at war, and now they're not at war. And what do you do? You go back and you settle into the regular rhythms of life. So this shift was 25% faster than the rate at which people returned to church from 1870 to 1895. But this is moving, obviously, in the opposite direction. So in terms of proportionality, it's the fastest shift. And then in terms of size, absolute size, it's also the largest shift. And so it's larger than the first Great Awakening, second Great Awakening, and all of the fruit from the Billy Graham Crusades combined. I don't even know how to really wrap my mind around 40 million people, but that's one in six American adults. Which I didn't realize the title of your book was a play off of the Great Awakening until I read that in the beginning. Made a lot of sense. So one of the things that you speak to in the book is this sense of urgency. You say there's a sense of urgency that we have. And I think for Chris and I, as we've stepped into the neighboring space, we talk about being in it for the long haul, the patience of neighboring. And so when I read your book about kind of how we have this window with our neighbors that could potentially close <laughs> and that there is some urgency there. It was challenging and convicting to me. So I'd love to hear your reaction to the research in that way. Did you feel some of that tension? Did you feel some of that angst? And what are your thoughts about this window and the urgency we have with neighbors? Yeah, we have a big job. I mean, that's a lot of people. Okay. The good news is we have a God who's good and he's in control. And just like the actual title of this podcast, he has placed us with a purpose. We all live exactly where God wants us to be living at any given point in time. And so the urgency is that yeah, I think de-churched parents are going to raise unchurched kids. So you're talking not just about the people who are alive today, but you're talking about the impact that comes from the generations that come downstream from all of these people. So the, the issue is not just the 40 million people who have de-churched. It's all of the generational chains that are going to spring forth from all of those people as well. I cut my teeth on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ in Italy. This was a country of 60 million people with, in the whole country, maybe 40 or 50 churches in the whole country that preach the gospel and that average about 40 or 50 people each. So you're talking about 2,000 serious gospel-centered Christians in the whole country for 60 million people. You guys have more than 2,000 people at your one church <laughs> in Columbia, Missouri. There's just a lot of urgency, though, because of the timing of this, okay? Because at some point, the de-churching phenomenon ceases because there aren't enough people. It's like COVID spikes. Why did COVID spikes spike? And then why did they stop spiking? Well, at some point, there aren't enough new people to get the virus to keep the spike going. 
Well, it's the same thing with de-churching. At some point, you don't have enough people who used to go to church regularly to keep doing that. So what happens after a de-churching spike is an unchurching spike. And I really don't think that we probably want that. I think in some ways, it's good to have a lot of people in American culture and society who at least have some categories for Jesus. Yeah, sure. Sometimes that can be a problem. Sometimes have enough Jesus in the bloodstream, especially in the Bible Belt, to be kind of inoculated. They've got the Jesus antidote because they've had enough proximity. Sure. There's some of that moralistic therapeutic deism, some have spoken about and whatnot. But I do think that we do have a unique opportunity that's here. And 51% of the 15 million people who left evangelical churches said that they're willing to return. So that was, I think, 48% of the cultural Christians, 100% of the de-church mainstream evangelicals, and I think it was 68% of the BIPOC group. I mean, consider for a moment that the BIPOC group, they've been gone from church for over 25 years, and two-thirds of them are willing to come to an evangelical church today. And half of the cultural Christians, of which only 1% say Jesus is the Son of God, these people are willing to come to church? Cool. Awesome. Going into this whole thing, Jim and I really weren't sure what we were looking at. And we were blown away by how much hope there was in kind of what we saw. Because we thought that most people were leaving probably more for the de-church casualty type reasons. Abuse, misogyny, racism, clergy misconduct, these different kinds of things. And that's there. The people who have those concerns, they're not wrong. 10 million people is a lot of people to be hurt by houses of worship. But that being said, we thought that inviting somebody to church was potentially a relationship-ending thing. And when we look down in the data, it doesn't seem to be a potentially relationship-ending conversation with most people. Are there people where that could be the case? Yes. But I think you will know <laughs> the ones who that's a very high-risk conversation to have. In the book we talk about, there's probably three categories of what people need from us. Some people just need a nudge from us, like the de-churched mainstream evangelicals. These people actually want to go back to church. They miss it. They've told us so. And anecdotally, from our experiences here, every time we kind of run into somebody that kind of fits that profile, they always say yes, and they always come to church. That's the first category of people who need a nudge. Whether it's a text, a water cool moment, a phone call, an in-person, I mean, it's simple. Like you reach somebody that fits that profile and it's like, hey, would you be willing to come to church with me and let's go out to eat after at such and such restaurant that I know you like? That person's going to say yes. That is the second category of people who need to be at your dinner table. That's probably more the like cultural Christians, BIPOC by and large. And then there's a third category of people that are probably not going to return to an evangelical church or maybe really anything at all. But we should still be investing. There just has to be a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And you'll know which person's which when you're actually in relationship with them, when you ask good questions and you be quiet and you listen. Who does God want us to invest in? Is it just the nudge people or nudge plus dinner table? No, it's all of the above. And you know who to invest in when God continually puts the same person in front of you over and over again. And whether that's in your neighborhood community, at the checkout, at the place where you work out, the places that you eat frequent food-wise or in car line or on the sports team in the stands next to the field or the court. Whoever God's putting like regularly in your life, well, these are people that God wants to be around your dinner table. 
And that's where we just have to have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And we have to be willing to reorder our own rhythms and habits to make space and priority and budget to do that level of hospitality. And we have to have alignment maritally. And we have to have alignment with our children, if we have children, to have that as a stated value for our household. I'm glad that you said that about the reordering, because I am curious. There was one point in the book where you said reading through the research, it made you, I don't know if you said cry or weep, but it really struck a chord. So I did want to ask, how did the research impact you personally? And you and Sarah both, I'd love to hear. Yeah, so it's not a normal thing to do to be looking at a spreadsheet and start crying. Yeah. <laughs> but usually this probably only happens in like corporate America when, when, <laughs> when your company's about to tank. Yeah. Or you, you got to face the shareholders. But no, I was looking at one cell in the spreadsheet on the ex-evangelicals. And we had asked the question about how would you assess how you were doing on suicidal thoughts? And we asked the, on a scale of zero to 100, where 100 is, I have no suicidal thoughts, I have no suicidal concerns, and where zero is, I'm doing very bad, I have suicidal thoughts, I'm very much struggling with this. Everybody scored bad on this, but the ex-evangelical group, their average score was 16 out of 100. And I took off my glasses, I just put my head down on the table and just started crying, because it's like, these aren't numbers. These are real people, and they are struggling in life. And they're cut off from people in community that could help them. Did some of the people that we surveyed, are some of them now no longer with us? So data can be something that can keep things at arm's length or can divorce us from embodied things. So one of the things we tried to do in the book is really make what seems like distant or wooden or whatever abstract, try to make that concrete and kind of build story around each of these different profiles. And so these are real people. I mean, every one of us knows somebody that fits in each one of these categories. Just by the sheer law of large numbers, most people have about 150 people who they're in a regular relationship with. And so you're going to know these people. You're standing next to them at the soccer game or the... They're our neighbors. They live right next door. They live next door. They're, it's the checkout person, the bank teller, all these people that we all know and are regularly in our lives. Yeah. I think what I appreciated too with your book and you're hitting on this is just that there's a lot happening behind the scenes. So if you meet a neighbor who is like, yeah, I no longer go to church, there's a lot there. There could be the reason of hurt. And if that's the case, then you can empathize that there's some really hard challenges that that person might be going through. And there might be some anger or frustration directed maybe at us. I go to church, but even to be reminded that there is some stuff going on behind the scenes. Now, you did say that there are quite a few of the people who have left the church that are willing to come back. I'm curious, like, what were some of the reasons why they left the church in the first place? So if I come across a neighbor who has left the church, they seem kind of open. I'm kind of wondering, why did you leave in the first place? And how could I help you reconnect with the church? So let me zoom out and then zoom in. Zooming out first. So before we did this research, 
kind of there were two stories that were being told about this phenomenon. The story kind of more on the left flank was, well, people have left church largely because of own goals, to use a soccer metaphor, mistakes that local churches or clergy or Christians have made for themselves. And then the story that was more on the right flank is, well, it's the culture, secular progressivism, expressive individualism, the ways in which there were new and strange developments sexually in American culture and society. And I would say that both of those stories have elements of truth to them. Those are obviously very observable phenomenon that certainly impact and influence many people. And we're able to have common conversations about them because we all see them. The problem, though, is that both of those stories are incomplete. And I would say that probably the single largest factor that's going on in dechurching in America is far more boring and trite and banal and pedestrian than either of those more interesting stories. And the boring story is that the inertia of American culture and society and its various subcultures is just not super conducive to regularly going to church. Let me unpack what I mean by that. America is increasingly fracturing and atomizing. The atomization of society is when people retreat more and more into smaller and smaller micro communities, and ultimately they just end up retreating into themselves. And so we move from individualism into hyper individualism. And this phenomenon of the atomization of American society is exacerbated and expedited by technology and even further expedited by algorithms. So if you get more and more used to the idea that I can just mute people, unfollow, block, whatever, when we're dealing with ones and zeros, well, eventually, subconsciously, unconsciously, maybe even consciously, won't we just end up doing that in real life too? And our worlds just end up more and more enveloping themselves and the bubbles get smaller and smaller, the echo chambers get smaller and smaller. It's like, look, I listen to some obscure music. I can find six other pastors in my city who listen to the same obscure music, who have the same doctrinal positions that I do, and I can find those six other people within three minutes, expedited by the various tools based on technology. On the one hand, it's like, well, that's kind of cool. On the other hand, that's really, really scary because we can then self-curate worlds, these micro-worlds where we have the illusion that we have an understanding of what's going on in our world. And so the internet functions like a funhouse mirror. It makes certain things larger than what they are in real life. And then other things, it makes them smaller than what they are in real life. And the nice thing about data is it cuts through all of that. And instead of having a funhouse mirror, we get to have an actual mirror that's flat, that's at least attempting to show us in a one-to-one way, what are we actually looking at here? So the inertia of American life, its habits, its subcultures, its rhythms is just not super conducive for church because people are retreating into themselves. One of the reasons why people don't go back to church is because they move. 
I remember seeing that as like a pretty high category. And I was instantly like, here's an opportunity with our neighbors. So not only do you want to hopefully welcome in the new neighbors, but if they've moved and over time you get to know that they went to church in their previous location and they haven't found a church yet, there's a good chance that that's the only thing standing in their way. It's just because they moved and they've got caught up in life and all the new things that come with moving. And I was just thinking, man, what an incredible opportunity there for people who are moving into our neighborhoods to potentially invite them back to church. So I want to talk about moving for a second in a departures and arrivals, to borrow from airport language. When somebody moves on a departure standpoint, that's an emergency in your church. That's an emergency in your friend group, because that is the most at-risk moment that somebody will have in terms of de-churching. I can think of numerous examples in my mind of just people who just, they moved and they didn't get plugged in at a new church in their first 60, 90 days. And just the inertia of life just kind of carries you on down the river. And so if you're a clergy and you're listening to this, or you're on a church staff, your church needs to have a proactive strategy of how do you know when somebody moves and what do you do? You need to have a process and you need to be clear about what that process is. I don't care what it is. We built a whole second website and a whole second resource on this website, dechurching.com. It's a toolkit for local churches that has like a 20-point audit of, hey, here's 20 things that impact de-churching and how it relates to your church as an institution. And here's an audit. The audit's for free there on that site. You can take the test on where we're at on these different things. And then for any area that's a weakness, there's a basically worksheets on what can we do institutionally to develop a process for when people move. So for clergy... And you find out that a family's moving from your community to any other community. It could be across the world. It could be 20 miles away. Well, help them do due diligence. Help them find two to five good new churches in that context. Spend some time like listening to a couple sermons, maybe shooting an email or two to some of those churches, asking some questions that go above and beyond the kind of stuff that you can find like on the website and boilerplate doctrinal statements and these kinds of things. And the Gospel Coalition has a tool for that specifically, don't they? There's like a find a new church. Yeah, there's a couple different pretty decent church search engines out there. You can go on tgc.org and the church search engine there is pretty good. And then if you're just somebody's friend and your friend's moving, well, I mean, you got more bandwidth probably than the pastors at your church. If you love your friend, help them out. Don't you want them to like have a good new friend community and a good place for them to worship Jesus and grow in their sanctification. Like, man, love your friend well. Because your friend, they got to think about movers and schools and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, they're probably thinking about church probably on some level, but you also have to live and eat and all those different kinds of things too. So help your friends when they're moving to a new community. So that's on the departure side. On the arrival side, it's like, if you're listening to this and you work at a school, Or if you're listening to this and you're a realtor, or you're somebody who interacts with people who are moving, well, you're like a frontline worker in this de-churching phenomenon. When you're showing people homes, there's really tactful ways to have this conversation. Let's say you're a realtor. Like, hey, I got a question for you. One thing I really like about this particular home and this community here is that there's some really good houses of worship in this community. 
I'm not sure if that's a priority for you because we haven't talked about that, but are you a person of faith? Is that something that is important to you? That's an easy, very non-threatening way to introduce something that can help them of like, oh yeah, and let's say that conversation goes somewhere. Oh yeah, we're a Baptist or, oh, we're Protestant or, oh, we're this or that. Well, it's like, then that realtor or, you know, whatever can make some suggestions of like, hey, you don't have to do anything with this, but I just took the liberty of putting together three churches within 10 miles or within 10 minutes of the new home that you're buying. And in the event that that was helpful for you. And then in your own neighborhoods, again, on the arrivals standpoint, I know some churches, they'll put together like little, basically welcome bags, not to give out at church, but to give out to their church members. Like, hey, if somebody moves into your community, all you got to do is take this bag of stuff that has things that people would need. So what's in the welcome basket? What do you think is in that welcome bag? Well, I think you got to exegete your context. You got to know your community is about what you would need to put in there. Because depending on what kind of community you're in, you'd put different things in there. But I think you're going to put things that are probably meeting more tangible needs, the kinds of stuff that you're like, oh my gosh, where's the screwdriver I need (laughs) to put this? Where's the Allen wrench to put my bed back together? That's such a good idea to throw an Allen wrench in there. That's amazing. So I think those would be some things. I don't know what other churches do, but it's like, Get together with the people in your community, figure out what would make sense there, do that and hand that to people so that they can have an easy turnkey, warmed up conversation. Hey, welcome to the community. I'm so, and this is my spouse, so-and-so, our kids are so-and-so and so-and-so, and their ages are this and that. And we're at these schools. We're just so glad you're here in the neighborhood. Here's a couple of things that we like about the community. I took the liberty of putting my phone number here inside a note in this. There's probably a couple of things in here that might be helpful for you as you're in this unboxing process. Here's a letter opener, a box cutter, a little screwdriver kit or whatever. We go to this church. There's some information on that. Love to have you join us, but like no pressure. Just glad you're here. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And people want to be in, welcomed in. Like the State Farm, I'm not even going to try to remember the statistic, but State Farm did this, a bunch of neighboring research, you know, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And they found that most people who move into a new neighbor want their neighbors to come over and introduce themselves and welcome them in. And a lot of times I think we could be like, oh, I don't want to be too pushy. They're probably stressed. I don't want to come on too much. But like they want that. And how great to bring something, say, here's a good mechanic. Here's our doctor. Here's where we go to church. If you have a faith interest, like we'd love to help you get connected in this new place. And you just have no idea what God could do through a conversation like that. Well, I think so many communities are also have an insider-outsider dynamic, okay? So if you're moving into a community where most people have been in that community for years or even decades, it's like the last neighborhood that we were in, most of what we observed was people would drive into the neighborhood. It was a gated neighborhood. They hit the garage door button, drive the vehicle into the garage, hit the garage door button again, and they go on with their life. Now, we didn't live our life that way. We tried to turn our house inside out and park your cars outside. We would walk and run in the neighborhood. We logged like 10,000 miles in 11 years walking and running. Well, Sarah does all those run Disney marathons. (laughs) She's she's amazing. But in our last neighborhood, we had 250 homes. And I knew 70% of those households on a first name basis. And you just do that when you live your life outside. 
And in Florida, we had hurricanes. And the nice thing about hurricanes, the best thing about hurricanes, when a hurricane comes through and everybody loses their power and their internet, what do they do? They go outside. Yeah. <laughs> Don't waste your hurricane. <laughs> That's awesome. That's your next book. It's a neighboring book. I'm calling it Don't Waste Your Hurricane right here. Yeah, that's good. And in all of that, you talk about the power of invitation in welcoming people back into the church. Is there anything that you'd want to encourage our listeners with? I think sometimes with neighbors, we're like, oh, I don't want to come off too pushy or put my faith on them. But like you guys hit on the power of the invitation. An invitation is really important and might be welcomed by a lot of people who have left the church and want to go back. I'm going to answer this question, but I'll do the Jesus thing and put a question on you guys. Uh-oh. When was the last time anybody invited you to something? Our neighbors have invited us to do some things. We're going to a fish fry on Saturday night, and we went to a birthday party with some neighbors last weekend. And how did it land when somebody invited you to something? How did it make you feel? It makes me feel like they want me there. Yeah. Included, appreciated, like they value us. Yeah. So when we went into this, and I don't know why, I just kind of felt like inviting somebody to something, it was like potentially a relationship. Is this going to end this relationship? But I think when we looked at it, and it's like when over half the people are willing to go to an evangelical church today, like, well, this isn't going to end this relationship. And some of these folks, particularly the G-Church mainstream evangelical profile, these people are going to view me positively for doing this. They're going to be like, glad I did this. And so you got to exercise relational wisdom and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit as to where to press in and where not and how much time and relational energy and capital and rhythms that you need. But I just think that there's tremendous hope in all of that. We have so much more hope after doing this study than what we did going into it. Because it's like, well, if people were leaving largely because, oh, the church has been so terrible and... It's just hurt all these people. And well, how am I going to help that? I can't fix every church in America. I can't undo every painful moment and horrible thing that's occurred. And then on the other side, if the only story that's there is like, well, it's the culture. Well, how am I supposed to change the culture? I can't even change a subculture, let alone the American culture. Like, what am I supposed to do about that? But the good news is that it's so much more boring than all of that for many people. Not all, but many. And so there's hope in that. And most of the reasons that people told us why they're willing to go back to church is it really just boils down to good relationships in a good local church. Well, if you exercise relational wisdom and you have a church that loves Jesus and is seeking to both proclaim and demonstrate how the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, is good, and beautiful, all at the same time. Well, guess what? If you just don't be a jerk or an idiot. <laughs> just hard not to do sometimes. Yeah. And you connect yourself to a healthy body. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. But you connect yourself to those things. Well, guess what? Good things are going to happen when you exercise relational wisdom and you get a little bit of education, a little bit of categories of like, oh, this is a nudge or this is my dinner table or this is years of investment. Good things are going to happen when we demystify all of that, we clarify that for most people, that's not going to end your relationship. Put yourself in the other person's shoes and communicate with them in light of that. Think about those things ahead of time. 
Well, Michael, I speak for both of us when I say we are so grateful that you would take your time to be here with us today. One of the things that you talked about in your book, you said that we need to create robust spaces for cultural Christians who are in between belief and unbelief. Sometimes they need to belong before they believe so that they can explore and examine the faith. And so I think in our neighborhoods, it's just a wonderful place for us to think of creating some of those spaces that are in between belief and unbelief, where they can try Christianity on for size and imagine what their lives would be like if they were to follow Christ. And so you've given us hope, you've given us challenge, and I think really a vision in our neighborhoods for how we can apply this just by extending that invitation and creating some of these spaces. So thank you so much for your wisdom and for your work. Thank you guys. It was a blast. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us. Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend.